This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome along to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can receive brand new episodes to your chosen podcast feed every Thursday. Just make sure to subscribe. Today we return to the Roman occupation of Britain and to a place we now call Roxeter Roman City. At one time, this rural part of Shropshire near the River Severn in the West Midlands was home to the fourth largest town in the province with all the trappings of Roman life, including a bathhouse, a market and a forum. With us now to talk about Viriconium and the new way it's being presented to visitors after a period of refurbishment are our two guests for this episode. Hi, I'm Andrew Roberts. I'm a properties historian here at English Heritage and I'm, I'm mainly responsible for our portfolio of Roman sites. Hi, I'm Cameron Moffat, and I am the regional curator of collections, and Roxeter is my biggest site. Thank you both for coming on. Looking forward to talking about this in some detail. To begin with, though, Andrew, when was Roxeter built and why? Well, the Romans first come to the area, which is in and around modern-day Shropshire, as part of their initial conquest of Britain. So the invasion takes place in about AD 43. They get to the area around Roxeter in about AD 47. And as you will know from having presumably listened to our previous podcasts about uh, late Iron Age Britain, Britain is divided up into a number of distinct tribes who control the lands and other resources. It's kind of a patchwork of different peoples. So it's not a unified nation when the Romans invade. And so in this area, the Roman army are confronted by and defeat the Cornovi people. And then they continue to operate in this area and westwards into what is now modern-day Wales. Then in about AD 57, they build a large legionary fortress, which is home to around about 5,000 soldiers. And this is to secure the area and protect the strategically important river crossing of the, of the River Severn. And then they're obviously they're campaigning in this area for, for, for the next few decades. And then in the 1890s, about 50 years into the Roman annexation of Britain, the army then moves out of Roxeter northwards towards Chester and other places. And in place of the fortress, in fact, on top of where the, the, the fortress once stood, the Romans found a new city and, like many others, built across Britain in this time. It's there to bring Roman-style living to the people of Britain. Yes, and a Roman name as well. Um, Indeed. Vir- Viriconium. So can you explain this Latin name, Viriconium? 
Well, the full name is actually Viriconium cornoviorum, and this broadly translates as the settlement called Viriconium belonging to the Cornovi people. So to deal with the, the Viriconium bit first, we're not entirely sure of what that refers to. It may well be the ancient name for the nearby Iron Age settlement on a hill that's called the Rikin, and this overlooks the site to this day. It's also possible, however, that perhaps one of the owners of maybe one of the farms that predate the Roman invasion was called Virico, and then he gives his name to the new town, which is founded in the place of, of where his farm once was. And then the second part of the name, the Cornoviorum bit, basically means of the Cornovi people. And this is quite interesting because it tells us quite a lot about the purpose and indeed the people of this new city. So when the Romans invade, they obviously brought with them lots of soldiers. There are presumably imperial elites that come over to Britain and have powerful roles within this new province and indeed cities such as Roxeter. But the Roman invasion doesn't mean a wholesale influx of new people. So what the Romans would have done was work with some of the existing elites of the Cornovi people and say to them, look, you're going to have to live in the Roman style, in this city, you have to conform to Roman laws, to Roman policy, and their name, therefore, is kind of retained in the name of the city. It's the city belonging to the Cornovi. Yeah, really interesting that point, isn't it? Because you can almost speculate about what the reason for that was, whether it was a genuine sort of gift or more, whether it was more like lip service, really. Well, it's gift with strings attached. That, that would probably be my interpretation of it. And of course, we should probably say that Roxeter is the nearby village, isn't it, in modern day terms? Yeah, so the nearby village, Roxeter, yeah, it's still a tiny little place, really. Mainly, this is a city that, unlike some of the cities that we have that were once Roman cities, it wasn't really developed. So a lot of the archaeology sort of remains sort of beneath the fields. And when we say city as well, we're talking about a Roman city, not a modern day size city. We're talking about a town size, really, in modern day terms. Yeah, so about 75, 80 hectares, something like that. It's about the same size as Pompeii in Italy, albeit nowhere near as intensively occupied. And in fact, there's a lot of, as I said, so a lot of the, the, the buildings actually remain unexcavated beneath the fields, although you can get a sense of how big it was because the defences, the ramparts, actually survive as earthworks. So you can kind of see the footprint of the city if, if, you, if you, you know, you're flying over it or you've got you're looking at looking down on it from one of the nearby hills you can kind of get a sense of how, how large this place once was yes indeed or you can go on to um, an online map service and, and have a look as well which is really useful what, what remains of this roman city then today well what remains visible and what you'll see as part of your visit is the center the very heart of the city and this was an area that would have been filled with imposing classical architecture it would have contained the kind of the great public buildings around which Roman life in the city revolved. So at Roxeter, like many other towns and cities that were built across Britain, you would have had a public bathhouse, which at Roxeter occupied an entire block, entire city block at the very centre of the town and included its own market and, and, and public hall, which we'll probably talk a little bit about later. Then across the road, you would have had the forum, which is essentially the centerpiece of, of Roman governance and Roman commerce. And this is really the seat of not only of governance in the city, but the seat of governance in the entire area, and a big symbol of Roman power. And then finally on site today, you'll also see 
a replica of a Roman townhouse. And this is only represents only one of well over a hundred similar houses that once would have filled the city and it's where the kind of the elite would have lived. So what happened to Roxeter Roman City after the Romans pulled out of Britannia? The Roman Roman governance officially sort of ends in about in about the fifth century, so almost four hundred years after they arrive. And we don't know exactly when Roxeter as a city ceased to exist because our evidence is quite limited and only to, to a certain part of the city. But it, it probably goes out of existence as a coherent society, quite or coherent community, I should say, quite quickly. But it may be that other areas remain occupied for a certain time. And then after that, there would have been, you know, quite quickly, buildings that go out of use aren't maintained, would have decayed, they would have collapsed. And then eventually they kind of get covered up by soil and, and, and things like that. However, there is continuity in, in rocks that we know of. By the 7th century, we know that there is an Anglo-Saxon settlement here. And indeed, they eventually incorporate some of the Roman building material within their structures, such as the church, which you can actually still see, see, see Roman stones incorporated into the, the church at Rockster to this day. And that happens quite a lot, doesn't it? I believe um, some stone from Hadrian's Wall has found its way into local churches in the north of England. Yes. Yeah, so if you go back and listen to our series on Hadrian's Wall, we know that Great Hexham Abbey, one of the sort of great abbeys of, of the Anglo-Saxon period, incorporates Roman stonework, as does, does Lanacost Priory, and probably quite a few farmhouses and, and stone walls are in and around the area around Hadrian's Wall. And to a certain extent, it's a similar kind of portrait that you'll get in and around Rochester today. Well, let's bring in Cameron into our conversation now. Cameron, what archaeological work has taken place at Roxeter and what types of objects have been found hiding underneath the earth? Well, archaeological work proper started in the mid-19th century, but as Andrew has indicated before that, there was more than a thousand years of the locals robbing out the stone to build churches and buildings and field walls and people digging simply because they thought they could find coins and treasure. There is a 13th century court case where a number of people were had up for digging for treasure at the base of the old work because, of course, there was this enormous piece of upstanding masonry telling people that there were ancient remains under the ground. So local people have always known that it was there and made a lot of use of it. The first real excavator, Thomas Wright, opened up the much-disturbed bathhouse in the mid-19th century, and he really opened out and emptied the hypocaust. So suddenly it was all visible, these pili stacks of tiles which held up the floor above the underfloor heating system. And then he was very sad because uh, lots of tourists came and helped themselves to individual tiles, and the pili stacks disappeared very rapidly. He is best remembered for having found a number of very late burials, probably Christian, and dating to the very last phases of use of parts of the buildings as burial vaults, because in the Roman period, you have to bury people outside the city boundaries. But in the medieval period, you don't have to do that and can use useful spaces. In the early 20th century, there were two professional excavations at Roxeter, either side of the First World War. In the first, they investigated, which was just beyond the civic center that is now the monument, a range of building types was found, including 
narrow strip houses, which comprised artisan housing with a shop in the front facing onto Watling Street and a major temple with sculpture and an elite townhouse with, a, with its own bath suite, which was the source of many expensive personal objects. And that townhouse was the basis for the recreated townhouse, which is now on the site. So that was really the first excavation where people were seeing what housing and and, uh, residences looked like beyond that civic center. Then after the First World War, the forum was extensively excavated and they found what's now called the gutter find. This is the contents of a market stall in the portico running along the Watling Street side of the forum. And this was the scene of a fire there in about 165 to 75 AD when a market trader lost his stock when the blazing portico roof collapsed on his stall. The ceramic vessels and whetstone blanks, all buried in debris, were still intact where they had fallen when the excavators started work there. And then, of course, more recently, in the second half of the last century, Rockstar is very well known for its excavations. Over a quarter of a century, every summer, there were research excavations directed by Graham Webster and Phil Barker. Graham Webster investigated what remains of the baths complex after the Victorians had messed it around so badly. And he dug the McKellum, the marketplace, where he encountered the interesting contents of the rubbish pits of the fast food businesses operating there. And then he went deep and exposed the remains of military structures stratified deep below the civic buildings in the city center. Phil Barker, at the same time, devoted himself to the Baths Basilica and developed new excavation techniques in the process, opening large areas for excavation and slowly peeling the layers back And they all sieved the soil as it was removed so that even the tiniest things were found like pollen grains and seeds, insects, fish bones and beads of which we have over a thousand. That's remarkable that these archaeologists and antiquarians, these people who came before, have really actually laid the foundation for English heritage's knowledge and the way it's being presented to visitors even today in the 21st century. And of course, that brings us very nicely onto the, the new way that Rockstar Roman City is being presented to visitors now. So what will visitors see and experience as part of this new retelling of the Rockstar story? Well, everything is new except the Roman, except the Roman remains. So the museum has been redone from scratch and it looks absolutely amazing. We have new cases, new text panels and some very fun interactives. Outside, all the panels are new, the audio guide is new, and the uh, replica villa has been smartened up. Rockstar's education offer is extremely popular with a lot of take-up, and the education suite has also been redecorated and its contents refreshed. So you're going to get lots of school parties coming along and spending an afternoon or a morning or something, I presume. Oh, the numbers of school parties. It, it is definitely the most popular school trip in the region. And we do routinely get school parties coming up from the London area because what we have is so good and so accessible for them. And they can run around all over the site and then they come into the education suite where there are handling collections and lots and lots of educational materials. They really like it. And of course, coming up from London, I suppose you've sort of got the uh, ancient connection, haven't you, with uh, Watling Street, which was, I believe, the, the route that sort of took you out of London northwest, isn't it, towards the Midlands? 
That's right. Yes. Rockstar was the last really big place before you got into, you know, wilderness and the Welsh. Exactly. Fascinating. Are you focusing on a particular period then of Rockstar's Roman past as these items are represented in in their new ways, Andrew? Yeah, we are. So Rockstar obviously tells quite a variety of different stories, but the story we really want to focus on is the city in its prime. And really, that starts about 100 or so years into Roman Britain in the second century and into the third century. And it's at this point that Roxeter has matured into one of the largest and most successful cities in Roman Britain. So the wealth of the Cornobi people had been built upon cattle farming across this rich agricultural landscape, which it still is today. And indeed, Roxeter's continued success under the Romans still derives from the, from the agriculture of the surrounding landscape, its cattle farming in particular. And so at this time, Roxeter is the capital city of this area and filled with some of the some truly monumental buildings, as we've already explained. And these really emphasize its great importance and also its wealth, and indeed its now proud Roman Roman heritage. So the buildings that you will see on site are really at the center of life in a Roman city. And people are going to really be able to get to grips with what people did there. We've talked a little bit about the forum. We've talked about the house. But the real star of Roxeter is the bathhouse. It is exceptionally well-preserved. It's the only complete visible public bath that survives in, in Roman Britain. And public bathhouses like this were built in towns and cities right across the Roman Empire. Since Roxeter is this, this new city built to bring the Roman way of life, it's so important that the people here have a bathhouse because coming to a bathhouse like this was a big part of being and acting like a Roman. And that's because the baths aren't just for getting clean. You can kind of do that at home if you wish. They're essentially this social hub where you participate in Roman culture. There's not really an equivalent building that we have in the modern day world. It's kind of like a cross between a shopping center, a leisure center, a fancy spa, and also a social club rolled into one. It's really the kind of the hub at the center of a community. And it's actually split up into different locations, different buildings. So you would start your visit in what was a, a, a vast basilica, so this big hall really. And indeed what Cameron called the, the old work, what's known, known as the old work, is part of this basilica, and it's indeed the highest surviving standing Roman wall in Britain. And inside this basilica, you would have exercised, uh, you might have got your hair done, you might have sought out different treatment to various medical ailments that you have. And there would have been little kind of cubicular little booths where traders would have sold their wares to the patrons of, of the bath. And after you've done a bit of that, you might then move into the bath suite itself. And this is a really lavishly decorated space and also a very ingenious space because the Romans brought with them their heating technology, a system known as the hypercourse to keep the baths warm, which visitors would be able to sort of see the guts of how that worked really um, when when they visit. And then also really see how kind of impressive in terms of architecture and engineering these spaces were because the rooms of the, of the bath suite had these great vaulted ceilings in order to accommodate the thousands of people that would have passed through every day. And then finally, you've been to the basilica, you've, you've been to the bathhouse. There was also a food market as part of this complex. And again, this is, I believe, probably the only complete surviving food market that you can visit in Roman Britain. And this is at the baths for a very good reason. And that's because you might spend a couple of hours at the baths and in, in doing so, you might meet 
with various friends or people that you want to kind of get to know and so you can get on in politics or, or business. And you might want to impress them by inviting them to dinner. And so you could go to this food market and purchase some choice cuts of meat to serve them. And then you can go off to dinner in your, in your fine townhouse, such as the townhouse that is replicated at Roxeter. Or if you're a little bit further down the social scale, you don't have a fine house and a kitchen, you could grab dinner and a few drinks with your friends in the little Taberni. Again, a very sort of rare survival that we have as part of the bath house, uh, complex at Roxeter. This is all being displayed quite helpfully with this replica house and, and all the other displays. Are. Do you have to use your imagination a fair bit? Or is it actually so well presented that you can really immerse yourself? I think one of the great things about Roxeter, and particularly the fact that you have this bathhouse here, is that it's very easy for you to, you as a visitor, to bring something of your own experience to your visit. Let's be honest, sometimes really ancient remains, archaeology, can be a little bit disconnected. It's not always that evocative of what it once was. But Roxeter's quite different for that. It's so well-preserved you know, the visitors will be able to recognize what the building did. They'll be able to to really kind of understand its function. They'll be able to walk amongst uh, the ruins. And hopefully while doing that, they'll be able to kind of recognize something of their own experience of visiting some of the places that I talked about, you know, your leisure centers, your spas, your marketplaces. And hopefully people will be able to make connections with the people who, who lived here over 1800 years ago. Absolutely. That's it, isn't it? It's connecting with the people of the past um, and through objects often. Cameron, are there any never-before-seen items from the previous archaeological digs that are going on display? Yes, definitely. It, it is a huge collection, and we were absolutely spoilt for choice. Half of the objects in the new museum were not in the old one, and many of the objects have been reconstructed for the new display, like bead necklaces and glass wine beakers, really visually exciting things. And because there's been a lot of recent research, quite a few objects are appearing with new interpretations. For example, Roxeter is well known for the group of more than 100 pieces of detached wall plaster, each one chosen because it resembled an eye, which were all found in the Bads Basilica. In the 20th century, when they were excavating them, they thought these were likely to relate to a local shrine for the healing of eye complaints. They now seem more likely to relate to the Roman belief in the evil eye. Ah, which we covered in a previous podcast, didn't we? We did, yes. With amulets and how you can use those, wearing those, to protect yourself from bad vibes, basically. Yep, there are a lot of amulets in the new museum. And what new things about Roman life do these objects tell us? Are we learning more new things about the Romans through this new set of displays, Cameron? I think um, maybe not new things, but expanding on particular themes at Roxeter. So the new exhibition has a very strong focus on beliefs and superstitions in the Roman period, in Roman Britain. And as well as the plaster eyes, we have examples of the image of a phallus, well known for giving protection against the curse of the evil eye. And also, as we've been discussing, various protective amulets and uh, many objects of religious significance. But Roxeter, with its almost 400 years as a major civilian settlement, has proved to be the perfect site for talking about women in Roman Britain. Their styles and interests can be seen in their possessions, and we can see those changing through time. And people will experience the site in other new ways as well. It's not just display cases and revamping 
the current offering, is it? It's more for the modern audience, isn't it? Uh, what sort of things will we see and hear, Andrew? Yeah, so if you know a bit about Roman objects, Roman archaeology, there's going to be plenty for you to enjoy here and plenty of nuances and new things for you to discover. But if you don't know anything about the Romans, it's also we're also going to really help you to kind of get to grips with who the Romans were and, and how Roman society really worked. And we're going to tell the story of Roxeter in a variety of different means and across different media. So, for example, there is a an AV, a, a, sort of a film that's going to give you a sense of the full scope and splendor of the city, not just the center, which you'll go out and explore, but how far the city kind of stretched across the landscape in its heyday. And we really kind of want to bring to life what it would have been like for you to visit the city center um, uh, when Roxeter is at its vibrant best. There would be a heady concoction of different sights and smells and sounds. And so we've used different media and different hands-on exhibits to really bring that to people. So to give you a couple of examples, as we've already discussed, Roxeter's public buildings were very beautifully decorated. And unfortunately, only fragments of that splendor really remains. So we've used, uh, we've worked with different artists to give you a kind of these 3D photoreal drawings that will give you the kind of the intricate detail and beauty of these spaces, reveal the the art and ingenuity of the builders. But also at the same time, there were there were some more humble spaces, places of work. You know, for example, the salon of the of the beautician, the butcher's shop, the pottery shop, where we can kind of give you a sense of the industry, the grit, the hard work, hard work that's taking place. The baths also was a particularly strong sensory experience. You know, when you went around the baths, you'd hear the sights and the sounds of physical exercise. You'd hear splashing about in the hot baths. You'd hear people getting various different treatments. For example, the Romans like massages and, and hair plucking. So to give you really a sense of, of this, you'll be able to read quotes from real Romans telling you what it was like to walk into places like this. You'll be able to listen into conversations between characters based on real people who might have lived here when Roxeter was at its highest extent. And you'll be able to get all this within within the audio tour along with some expert insights to give you some of the sort of insider information to the nuances of Roman bathing, Roman food and, and culture, and also archaeological excavations. Yes. And you've mentioned those Roman characters who are going to reveal certain aspects of Roxeter's history and story. Cameron, can you tell us a bit more about who these people are, what their roles in Roxeter's Roman society? Yes. When we first started working on this project, the team decided early on that what we really needed in the museum was a display case for each major building that we then needed to explain to people out on the site. And then having set that up, it sort of seemed natural to want to populate those spaces outside with people who, who would then animate it and could then be seen to be interacting and doing things with the objects that we had put in the cases. It, it just seemed logical to go in that direction. So we started with a, a wealthy family to reside in the elite house of the second century. And the family consists of uh, the father, Vero, who we have imagined as the grandson of Virico, the supposed founder of Viriconium Cornoviorum, the civilian Roxeter. And he lives there with his wife, Claudia, and their children. And we also have uh, market traders and specialists like doctors providing services in the basilica. 
And then these family members go out into the city center to use the amenities there and they interact with other characters and they interact with the buildings. And of course, we came inevitably to the fact of slavery because all the the municipal baths, the big houses, the agricultural production in the surrounding landscape, that whole large and wealthy city, it's all underpinned by slave labor. So slaves had to be represented and they really are a whole range of them. So you really get a sense of what it was like to be there at the time, I suppose. Was there a bit of creative license with these characters do they have some base in Roxeter genuine history or were they no we don't we don't have those kinds of documentary records for a place like Roxeter so they are simply people who we knew were likely to have been there so archetypes effectively yeah archetypes exactly are there any other hands-on activities that visitors can take part in Cameron We have a number of stopping points throughout the site with hands-on activities, mainly using this cast of characters. In the museum, we have a game based on gift giving in the Roman period, the types of gifts that might be given and the occasions that were celebrated with gifts. And that's very visually exciting and incorporates actual replica Roman objects rather than just images of them. Over at the replica villa, we've planted culinary herbs that were brought here by the Romans, like bay trees and thyme and rosemary. And all of these now standard herbs were introduced by the Romans. And uh, I think over there they will be particularly used and smelled by the many school groups that visit Roxeter. Andrew, what else uh, is there to talk about uh, regarding sort of things that you can really touch and interact with? Well, my particular favourite is an interactive that explores Roman style bathing. So we've done an entire podcast on this. So I encourage listeners to go back and listen in to hear all the, the, the detail. But to put it Briefly, Roman bathing is more than just a quick wash. You progress through a range of different spaces that are kept at different temperatures, going from cold to warm to hot, back to warm, back to cold. And in the different rooms, different kind of activities might take place. So you really need to be on the board. You really need to kind of know where you're going and what you're supposed to expect it to do, because bathing is such a quintessentially Roman practice. It's important to kind of get it right if you're going to act like a Roman should. So in the bathing suite, you're going to get to listen to Vero, one of our characters, talking to his younger son, instructing him in the proper uh, use of the baths. And you kind of have to try and remember and, and work out what the proper bathing sequence is in order to complete your task. You talked about how the bathing experience was a set of stages and how long would it actually take to bathe? Because today we might jump in the shower for five minutes, maybe less, if, uh, if we're trying to save water. How long was the Roman bathing experience? Well, in theory, you could do it in, you know, 10 minutes. You know, it, it, you just go in through the different rooms and you, you, you kind of jump in the cold plunge and you're done, right? But in practice particularly for those who don't necessarily have anything to do of an afternoon, the Roman working day is is over by lunchtime, it could take hours because you might take your time going through this process. You'll go in company, you'll socialize, you might go through the baths once and then go back around again. You might check out the different kinds of, of heat that the baths provide. So there's a main bathing suite, which is a little bit like well, it's it's just a sort of series of big hot rooms. Maybe there's a little bit of steam involved. But then there are two ancillary suites where you have the same process, but with a very 
dry heat, almost like a sauna. And then there's all sorts of other activities that take place. You might, if you get a massage, that might take half an hour. If you go and get your hair plucked, that might take an hour. Who knows? You may catch some entertainment. There, it, we have descriptions of Roman baths being home to different kinds of performers, poetry recitals jugglers you might grab a snack or two so in all if you've got the time to do it it could take all afternoon sounds great (laughs) doesn't it okay well this leads us on unfortunately to our final set of questions after all that fun excitement but um why was it important to update the way that english heritage told the story of rockster rockster roman city Well, overall, the visitor offer at the site was very much in need of modernization, particularly for such an important site. The cases in the museum were actually the original ones from the 1970s and were not remotely airtight as modern cases need to be. The text panels and graphics had last been updated in the 1980s when the Barker and Webster excavations were published. And there was new content then. But there have only been a few minor tweaks since since the 1980s. But now there is new research, new recent research, and that needed to be incorporated into the new presentation project. And what do you think people will take away from this new experience, this new presentation of the site as a whole? You first of all, Cameron. The redisplay has been a two-year process, and in that period, many people who didn't have an archaeological background have been involved doing things like taking new photographs or designing the museum, and almost everyone who has looked at the finds going into the new display has said they could easily have believed that they were modern. So for me, that is a big factor in representing Rockstar, that these people living there 1,800 years ago, they were really very much like us. The Romans certainly introduced consumerism, which uh, still lives with us in the 21st century. Uh, And it was very much a matter of you are what you buy and what you wear. And look, here is a huge range of goods that you can choose from to express yourself. And I also think that visitors will get a great deal out of the focus we've placed on the long civilian period at Roxeter. English Heritage has many Roman sites that are perfect for telling the story of the actual invasion, especially places like the sites on Hadrian's Wall or Richborough, which, where there's also a new project. And these were places that were established by the Roman army and then carried on as forts for the duration. Roxeter, however, was absolutely the right place to showcase the civilian population of Roman Britain. Ah, okay. So it's almost like it's emblematic of the settling of Roman Britain. The successful settling and the enduring settlement, yes. Andrew, what do you think people will take away when they visit the new visitor experience? Well, it's difficult to top what Cameron's just just outlined there. I think the essence of Roman culture is living together in cities. Cities like Roxeter. And Roxeter tells the story not just of Roman society in this area, but Roman society throughout the empire. It's about individual lives, individual tastes, experiences, and then also those of the collective. So I'm really hoping that people will come away from this really surprised at how vibrant these places were, the variety of different people who lived here and what they did, and ultimately feel like they've spent time in the company of the people of Roman Britain as they go about their lives. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. 
Next week, we'll discover the previously untold stories of the LGBTQ communities from clues left at English heritage sites. We all relate to other people in different ways and sometimes in ways that surprise us. And that's kind of the joy of history and the joy of the privilege of the jobs that we have at English Heritage. Thanks for listening. See you next time.